Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. And my name is Audra. All right, Mom, what's up? Hey, you had a gig last night. I did have a gig last night. My first gig ever. Well, not ever. Yeah, pretty much. How is that possible? It's the first time I've ever been in a band. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> first time I've ever played a show in a band. Well, as an as a, I don't know, like a studying musician, you were yeah. in a short band, lived band in high school. Mm-hmm. And that was all covers. Though. We played originals last night, and then oh, you did. Like okay, so this is an cover. original band. Cool. Yeah. Yep. So where did you play? We played at Chain Reaction in Santa Ana, which was is it a what is that? What is Chain Reaction? Is it a bar? Is it a? It, no, it's a little like venue, um, like music thing. It's got a big stage or not a big stage, but a stage. Cool. Uh, and then so it's like kind of like you walk in through these double doors. You go to the side. They have like a bar in there. Um, so it's a bar. No, they have a bar, oh. but it's just for you to get drinks. You can't really sit down at there. You just stand up. And then oh. there's the stage, bathrooms in the back. Um, it's pretty cool. Cool. We played for so like what is the name of the band? Paradise Falls right now. We Todd's idea was Sunday Morning Joyride, which I actually really liked the band name. Sunday Morning Joyride. Kind of sick. Could be anything, you know. But band names are hard, so we just have been putting whatever on the thing. And I almost wasn't going to play this gig. Like, I was so close to not playing it. I was nervous. Didn't know any of the songs. But when we took a picture last time, we were going to play in a little surf shop. We almost played in a surf shop two weeks ago. I came prepared. Everything was ready to go. My little twin reverb amp completely first song it, i like turned it on it was working i was like dun dun play like a chord and then we were it stopped working so i couldn't play the gig that right. sucked and then i just had to sit out the whole time todd during one of the songs handed me his guitar so i played a little guitar solo during the song which was cool okay but so same guys um then i almost didn't play this gig because it was again i didn't feel ready i was nervous anxiety whatever um that's you yep but uh I guess we uh, pulled through, practiced a whole bunch. I had a super good time practicing. Yay. So how many? Just, how long did you play for? We played for like 45 minutes, I think. Wow. I know. It, we were the headliner. So it's my first show pretty much ever. How many people do you think were there? Songs, like 50. Nice. Yeah. In it the would beginning. Be nice, it would be nice to know about these things so I can put it on social media and have people come out. Well. I didn't know you were going to a gig, by the way, until... I started seeing your Instagram yeah. stories, and I was like, wait a minute. Aiden's, like, not even in school. He's yeah. not in town. <laughs> yeah. He's driven somewhere to yeah. Santa Ana, and in a van, he's the back of a van. It looked like you are being kidnapped. That was for me mentally preparing myself, though. I knew I was okay. going to do that. I would, this is the first first thing. I wasn't going to sh- tell anybody about it because I was nervous, but okay. you know me. I'm very stiff on stage. Even when we were practicing, the guys were like, Aiden, you have to loosen up a little bit. Don't look so dead on stage with your eyes all, like, don't look mad or, like, <laughs> depressed. Do, you do Because I look depressed. <laughs> I get really nervous. But you know what I did? Dude, so th- we, I went up on the stage, set up the whole amp and everything. Don't call me dude. Sorry. And then I put, turned my amp on. It worked. And then it stopped working again. Different amp, different situation, way more people. It stopped working. I was like, oh, crap. The first song that we went into, it was cutting in and out. I was, like, leaning down, fixing it. It would come in super loud. Like, the first show, song was a nightmare, right? So what I'm hearing is you want somebody to donate you in a sweet concert S- amp. Yes, or just any old vintage amp that I can play out of. I'm using Why vintage, why vintage amp? Because it'll be sounding awesome. Super cool. It just sounds okay. sick, yeah. Um, but I... Yeah, expensive. Neat. All right. Well, cool. Well, no, that's not the whole story. 
Oh, sorry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't cut me off. Excuse me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So no, okay, so no. I, I, so it turned out it was my cable. So I switched cables in and out throughout the whole show. It was kind of like I would have to bend down and hit my cable in because my sound would cut out or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like instead of getting like sh- shutting down like I normally would, I actually was like strutting around on stage soloing and had like a super good amount of showmanship and i was like soloing to the crowd and all this stuff and the, and like todd was telling me he was like bro don't be nervous up there like you gotta be you have to be like alive a little bit and i was more alive than he was up there nice it was probably honestly one of the best nights of my whole life nice. it was like the most fun i've ever had awesome and i did Yay. some killer guitar solos and i will p- i saw one i will post it you can send it to me i'll post it on instagram so they can see you sick doing your guitar solo mm-hmm. and that's exciting because I know that you love to perform and you get mm. a big high off of it, which is why most people do it. And I know yeah. that when you're not doing it, you get bummed out about music. So you need to be up there doing it because that's oh, where yeah. you get your joy. So I hope you keep doing it. There's actually, Todd says he has a festival date for us lined up that some kid's putting on in Joshua awesome. Tree in cool. June. So Don't climb the trees in Joshua Tree. You get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that's my pretty much my, my story. I felt like a little rock star last night. Good. Which is very appropriate for today's episode, considering we are going to be talking about some of the greatest rock stars of all time. Well, we're also going to be talking about guitar, uh, guitars. We're going to be tar- st- okay. <laughs> Good. Hello. Okay. Do Calm down. <laughs> I have anxiety about nothing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we're going to be talking about rock stars with anxiety and Me. showmanship Me. and covering their faces Me. or dead eyes and covering yep. your faces. Yep. Because we're talking about Guns N' Roses. Yes. Yes. They all had anxiety. Slash covered his face out of anxiety. So he wouldn't have dead eyes. Sunglasses. Hat. It's the whole thing. It's wrapped up into one. Mm-hmm. You might as well be a famous rock star. There you go. Yep. So. Rolling Stones. Um, coined. I guess you would say. Guns N' Roses with a nickname of the most dangerous band in the world. Mm. This is bringing me all kinds of 80s, 90s, sitting in my room and my headphones on and my tape player Mm -hmm. and freaking out because I loved Guns N' Roses so much. Papa hated them and called them trash, loud, obnoxious, couldn't get enough of it. And we will come to find out that they earned that nickname because they were your typical rock stars. Anybody saw the Motley Crue doc, which I refuse to watch, or I don't. What do they call them? Mockumentaries when they're not uh, the real cares? people. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I won't cares? watch many, it because too many words. It's, it's gross, and I don't. I don't like that. I will say but that they, I did watch it, and I loved it. So <laughs> I sorry. <bet> you did. <laughs> I want to see the real people. I don't want to see like a bunch of actors like pretending to be Motley Crue. And yeah. I know they they played up all the gross crap they used to do, which I know they did, and it's disgusting. Um, and they were awful to women, and blah blah blah, and uh, you know. But it was the '80s, and that's what happened, unfortunately. Yep. So and, I mean, all these rock stars did all this crap. So of course they did. You either idolize none of them or all of them in a right. certain way. So well, and you can idolize same. part of it. They trashed hotel rooms. They drank copious amounts of alcohol to the point where it makes me want to vomit when I think about it. Yeah, that's They did a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. Like every, all the drugs. Yep. Um, women, riots, mm-hmm. schools banned their t-shirts. Yep. I mean, it was the epitome of rock and roll. Sounds super sick already. It's super invested. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> okay. 
So I watched uh, the cool documentary, um, Duff McKeegan's, uh, McKagan, I'm sorry, I pronounce that wrong every time. It's called It's So Easy and Other Lies. He actually wrote, it's a book, and then he did this cool um, documentary. It's on Amazon Prime, so it's free if you have Amazon Prime, and he kind of reads out of his book, and behind him is like a band slash orchestra, and they play like the Guns N' Roses music behind him as he kind of reads excerpts from his book and talks about his life, which is Wait, really Wait, what? Really that cool. sounds sick. What is that? It's it's uh, called It's So Easy and Other Lies on Amazon Prime. Oh, okay, I'm going to watch that tonight. Yeah. Um, and he shows like early clippings and like photos from like his early bands and stuff that we'll get into. And then I watched part of this documentary um, about Axl Rose called The Prettiest Star, which is not an authorized documentary. It's just almost like a, I don't know, behind the scenes, behind the music kind of thing, which was kind of interesting about his early life because he has kind of a messed up childhood as they all sort of did, but his was by far the worst. And then a bunch of Rolling Stone articles and then various interview clips. So I'm going to go over the members of the original lineup of GNR first. GNR or Gunners, as some people called them. Um, and then we're going to talk about the forming of the band and all the antics. So the original lineup was Axl Rose, uh, lead guitar, uh, sorry, lead singer, lead guitar slash, rhythm guitar, Izzy Stradlin, bassist, Duff McKagan, and drummer, Steven Adler. So Axl was born Bruce, sorry, screw that up again born William Bruce Rose Jr. from Lafayette, Indiana. His parents divorced when he was two, um, and it was kind of an unplanned pregnancy. I don't think that they were prepared to get married. They were both very young, it sounded like, and his dad was kind of known as the local delinquent, and he ended up kidnapping Axel when he was two and mol sexually molesting him. His own dad? Yes. I'm not really sure how he got back, but somehow he got back, and his mom remarried and changed um, William's last name to Bailey, so he was Bill Bailey all through school. That's how people knew him, um, and Axel thought his this Bailey dude was his real dad, bio dad, until he was about 17 when he was kind of rummaging through some papers in his house and discovered um, his biological dad and his name which was William Rose, and he changed his name back to Rose. Hmm. Um, his bio dad was eventually murdered. Um, he was not into good stuff and was eventually murdered. I don't think really anybody was pinned for it, um, but he didn't find that out until years and years later. They were a very religious family, and like to the point where TVs were satanic, you know, all kinds of very oh, wow. strict upbringing. He sang in the church choir, and that's where he kind of got his singing background and upbringing, which a lot of really good musicians start young in church, I find. Um, he eventually hitchhiked to L.A. to get out of Dodge and form a band with his childhood friend, Izzy Stradlin. Um, he was a troublemaker in and out of jail. Um, police were always harassing him. He kind of felt, in his words, that they were trying to pin something on him to put him into, into jail for life. And he was in some kind of trouble where his lawyer was trying to get him out of some jail time, and they told him not to leave the state, but he ended up just bailing and going to L.A., and they eventually, um, his lawyer took care of his issues, and they kind of dropped it, and he basically didn't go back for years and years. He's known, as everyone probably knows, if they're fans of GNR, that he was, he's volatile, very difficult, everybody fought with him, you know, he's kind of 
out there. You know, he had guns around. He was known as paranoid. Um, in a bunch of the Rolling Stone uh, interviews, he had like you know mach- semi-automatic weapons like tucked under couches behind him. You know, I'm sure because of his upbringing, he felt unsafe his whole life, if, especially if he was like molested by his own father. I'm sure, yeah. Um, and I think he has probably some kind of mental illness. I think they've talked about later on, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm assuming. Um, and then he ended up becoming a recluse um, later on. Uh, so when he went to L.A., uh, you know, he was known for his destructive behavior as well. There's a quote from him when they were asked, an interviewer asked him about, you know, why do you destroy all these things? Because he had just destroyed his own apartment, like, prior to this interview. And he said, quote, I'd rather kick in my stereo than cut my arm. I'd rather kick my stereo in than go to s- punch somebody in the face. End quote. So he was thinking about cutting and destructive behavior like that, you know, um, which is a sign of being in pain, obviously. But he started just basically destroying everything around him. When he got to L.A., one of the first bands he was really in that he was obsessed with was called Axel AXL. And when that band was kind of breaking up, his friends said, hey, you should just start calling yourself Axel. That's kind of your stage name. And that's where that name comes from. His trademark is his stage presence and his showmanship are off the charts, but he's known for his snake dance, which yep. Kurt Cobain tried to imitate. I found online yep. it like it was during an in utero tour and it's horrible, a horrible snake dance. Not impressed. He looked like he was stomping around on stage. Sorry, Kurt. I think that was um, kind of the point, Rex. They had a feud. Yeah, they did have a feud. I'll talk about it later. So I don't know if he was making fun <laughs> of him or whatever it was. <laughs> ha ha ha, Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Cobain wins again. I guess not because he died. So <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pete Kurt. Izzy Stradlin uh, was born Jeffrey Dean Isbell. He grew up in Lafayette, Indiana as well, went to school with Axl Rose. His parents divorced when he was eight, and he was described his childhood as being very Beavis and Butthead, which I thought was funny. If anybody remembers the Beavis and Butthead cartoons, they kind of are stoners, and they sit around and just basically do nothing and are funny. Um, He started playing drums in high school and formed a band with Axl, who was the lead singer. Uh, They kind of just played in the garage and screwed around. According to him, they didn't really play gigs or anything. He graduated with a D average, which I think he was kind of proud of because I don't think he really expected to graduate. Me. <laughs> and he moved. Yeah. <laughs> Is he an eight entered the same? I think he had a C average. Yep. It would dip he below pull- that. I think he time. pulled it out at the end. And he moved to LA to be in a band, of course. Um, I think he actually got there before Axel. So Axel kind of went out there, as I said, to meet uh, Izzy. Um, the one thing I kind of found out about him that I thought was funny was he was in a band called Naughty Woman, and they were a cross-dressing band. Oh, so nice. So you can find pictures of them online. It's kind of funny. Uh, Slash, he was born Saul Hudson from England. He moved to L.A. and was raised in Laurel Canyon. Shout out to Laurel Canyon. Wait, what's his ethnicity? His mom is African-American, and his dad's white. Okay. And I think his dad is Jewish. Yeah, okay, because he, like, because he's always hiding his face and his eyes and everything with his long hair and his top hat, he, like, uh, I didn't know, like, what his face looked like mm-hmm. until, like, I don't know, recently, for years or whatever, I saw a picture yeah. of him, like, with just his face, and I was like, like, what is, what even is this dude? Right. Because I just saw his face for the first time. It was, like, yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, because he, you know, because he suffered from severe stage fright and anxiety. Yeah. Um, 
So his mom was a costume designer, and she had clients such as John Lennon, Diana Ross, and David Bowie. Mm. She was big time. And his dad was an artist, and he did Joni Mitchell's, who was one of their neighbors in Laurel Canyon, and Neil Young's album covers. Wow. His parents divorced when he was little, of course, like everyone else's did. And he sometimes went to work with his mom, and he was given the nickname Slash by actor Seymour Castle because he was always running around in a hurry, zipping around from one thing to the other. Um, he decided he wanted to form a band with his friend Steven Adler, who he went to school with, and uh, first tried the bass, but then switched to the guitar after seeing, I think it was a Brown Sugar performance or somebody do doing Brown Sugar, and he was like blown away by that. He knew it was his passion when he went to a girl's house. He, some girl that he liked, um, I think he was around 13 or 14, was like, hey, come over to my house so we can like make out. My parents are gone. And she ended, she had a guitar like somewhere in her house. And he realized that this is what he wanted to do. And he ignored her, basically, and, and played the guitar the whole time he was sitting there. Also me. <laughs> yeah. Aiden, stop. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up, babe. <laughs> Great. That, I, I don't let, think you should let your girlfriend hear that. <laughs> he's he's now considered one of the best guitar players of all time. Thank you. You know, if you look up his stuff, it's like Rolling did Stone. That top did, did that huh? joke just go wet it right over your head? Yeah, so that you're the best guitar player of all yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> you literally just ignored it. I was like, uh, uh people no, listen to it. this? Huh? I just ignored you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you're very high off this one performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. To, Plus, it's Guns N' Roses. It's a good podcast. I like this band. <laughs> But also, again, thank I you for the compliment. I can't imagine when you, if you are famous, oh, it's going to be bad. a nightmare after one gig. Jeez. I'm just going to eat cookies every day. <laughs> Only cookies all the time. All the time cookies. Okay. So, uh, like I was saying, he's like Rolling Stone, one of the top 100 guitar players or top 50 guitar players on Billboard or whatever. And then, of course, a lot of his guitar riffs are considered some of the top 10 guitar riffs of all time. Yes, he's literally, for writing solo pieces for recorded music, to me, is like one of the best. Just his mm -hmm. little, like... The, his phrasing and it's just so good his guitar yeah. solos are so good he's obviously introverted and shy yeah and that's why he grows his hair out long covers his face he has sunglasses on and he still to this day wears his sunglasses he might not wear a hat um you know the big top hat but he wears his sunglasses in most interviews it's very rare to find him without anything on his face um and the top hat story um was just kind of like everyone's thought this was a majorly planned thing that became his kind of trademark but he tells a story where he just was they had a gig he didn't have anything to cover himself and he was kind of running by this stuff because he I guess he used to steal hats all the time to wear on stage and he ended up stealing this top hat one time and it, he ended up liking it because it was big and kind of covered most of his face and that's just kind of what stuck and that's what he's known for now yep sick so Stephen Adler was born Michael Coletti in Cleveland Ohio his father was also named Michael Coletti and he bounced on his mom um, and moved to San Fernando Valley. She moved to San Fernando Valley after the dad bounced on him and changed his name to Stephen. Um, she was Jewish, and traditionally in the Jewish um, religion, you don't name your children after someone living. So clearly his father was Italian, and it's a very common to obviously name your name after your Italian father and mm. you have the ones and twos and juniors and whatever and then when he was gone she was like screw you I'm doing what my religion says to do and she changed his name to Stephen um, when she remarried Stephen took on 
uh, her her new surname, which she married a guy named Adler. So that's how he became Stephen Adler. He was, again, another troublemaker. Um, his parents couldn't deal with him, and they sent him at some point, I think in junior high, to, to live in Hollywood with his grandparents. And he was doing drugs by the age of 11. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. He, he met Slash in junior high when he was in Hollywood, and um, obviously Slash was in Laurel Canyon. When he crashed his skateboard, Slash stopped and to help him, and they were ended up being lifelong friends. And he ended up starting to play drums in high school. So Duff uh, grew up Michael McKagan in Seattle, and he's the youngest of eight. Big Irish family. Yeah. He got his nickname Duff at the age of two, just from his family, and he was very early on in the punk scene in Seattle. So this documentary that I watched, which is really cool, goes into his whole punk scene. And his dad took off. I don't think his dad took off, but his dad was ha- I think his dad was having numerous affairs. And the mom was like, you know, not dealing well with it. And so he, they kind of interview one of his sisters. And she's like, we all tried to help her because she was depressed. And she drank a lot because my dad was constantly cheating on her. And when Duff Duff married young he was one of the first to get married very young um, and had a bad marriage and I think he stayed in it longer than he needed to because he was trying not to be his dad and he ended up being his dad cheating and all this kind of stuff got divorced and then he later on went to have a happy marriage but you know stuff repeated in his life he had numerous bands he was in 10 minute warning the farts with a Z (laughs) (laughs) such a punk name cleavage and the fags Mm-hmm. Uh, which will become a theme later, unfortunately, for this band, Guns N' Roses. Okay. Others, <laughs> others, um, and a bunch of others. I mean, there was like ten other bands, like numerous. Yeah. Some, somebody from the Melvins, one of the guys from the Melvins they interviewed, uh, had gone to like a ten-minute warning show, so they were kind of known and bouncing around. That's cool. Um, others, uh, you know, other bands. He played his first concert. Um, with his band called The Veins, and they actually had a 45 that they put out, and that is actually in that EMP museum in Seattle, um, and I guess there's very few of them out there, but if you have one, they're collector's item, and they might be worth a little bit of money. So Duff, this is going to blow your mind, he started smoking pot in fourth grade. Whoa. Okay, I have a third grader and a fifth grader. They are babies. I cannot, can you imagine like Dylan smoking pot. Wow. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we found out he did, but he again, just started, incredible. Right before we started recording the podcast, he was crying because I wouldn't take him up to the playground to finish the hole he started digging in recess. The hole he was digging where he was burying his pot. <laughs> Clearly. He was digging a hole in the sand at recess on Friday and wanted me to take him back <laughs> to the playground to finish it. It's been pouring down rain. I said no, and he started crying. So I can't imagine a kid like that smoking pot. Yeah, that's wild. It's crazy. Anyway, sorry, Dylan. And in fifth grade, he started drinking. Okay, well, that's way too early for that. In sixth grade, he was doing LSD. And that's way too early for that. And in seventh grade, he was doing coke. And that's, no, that's the right time. So he is not, he is a, well, I would say he is a candidate for the gateway drug of pot. No. Going on to literally every year, something horrible happened. He would have done it anyway. And then he did, later on, after that, did all the drugs. Pills, yeah. whatever. I actually have a drugs anecdote. That's what I have right here. You would like okay. to hear real quick. So, 
Um, let's see. Slash and I, meaning Duff, I believe, said they christened the, their plane, which is their big private jet that they used to fly around in. Christened the plane on our maiden journey by smoking crack together. They smoked crack in the bathroom, and it says they smoked it before the wheels even like left the ground for the first time. So they got in their private jet, their first huge, the private jet, went straight to the bathroom and smoked crack. They would drink on there. He says he didn't... Let's see. There's another one right here. I don't even remember playing Czechoslovakia. We played a stadium show in one of the most beautiful cities in Eastern Europe not long after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the only way I knew it was because of the stamp I found on my passport. Whoa. That's crazy. Good Lord. That gives me so much anxiety. Yeah. Okay. Well... (laughs) When heroin came into his life and came into Seattle, like he said, it was like waves of heroin were coming in, and a lot of punk musicians were dying. And he knew if he was going to stay, he was obviously going to die. Clearly, it didn't stop him from doing all other, you know, crack. Um, mm-hmm. But it was a bad situation in Seattle at the time, and so he just took off and went to L.A. And he's like, I didn't really have any particular reason I was going to L.A. It was just a big city, and it was not Seattle um, so I'm going to play you from that 45 the only 45 that came out from the veins a song called The Loser which features Duff So here, and it's very punk here we go That's super punk. Very punk. Yep. That's the loser, the veins. So I'm going to kind of go into, you know, so those are the key players that are the original classic lineup of Guns N' Roses. Now I'm going to kind of go into the convoluted way that Guns N' Roses formed because they had many bands and people were kind of changing lineups and moving around at the time. So Slash and Adler were in a band called Road Crew, and Slash, uh, they were looking for a bass player, and Slash put an ad out in the recycler for an Alice and Alice Cooper type bass player, and Duff answered. A lot of people answered, but no one actually wanted to meet Slash and Steven, and he was basically the only one that showed up for a meeting, <laughs> which I find crazy. Um, they used to hang out at Cantor's Deli on Fairfax, mm. which we've gone to a ton. Um, and they hung out at the first booth on the left. If you want to sit at the Guns N' Roses table, mm-hmm. that's where it is. First okay. booth on the left when you go into Cantor's. So a little bit about Cantor's. Cantor's Deli is a 24-hour L.A. staple. It opened in 1931. It opened originally as Cantor's Brothers Delicatessen in Boyle Heights, which is east of downtown L.A by Ben Cantor and his two brothers. It moved to its current location in the 40s when the brothers bought the Esquire Theater. And that is why when you go in to see the deli, there are these very tall ceilings and you can see them from pictures, which is part of the original theater, which is kind of cool. So he went in there and the story goes that they were sitting with um, their girlfriends, Slash and Steven, 
and they were very rock and roll long hair you know leather this whole thing and duff kind of came in with like this punk electric blue short haircut and this he called it a long red pimp coat it was kind of this long leather coat down to his feet um and slash was like i knew immediately it was duff because he looked completely different than everybody else and and duff knew that uh, these rocker guys were who he was meeting and it was kind of instant chemistry they talked for hours they ended up going back to Slash's house and Slash Slash showed him uh, his snake and oh uh, yeah he thought it was weird that Slash had a snake he's like dude what do you got a snake for <laughs> and Axl Rose does the snake and on their album covers a snake so there's oh, a okay. snake, snake theme, theme. Mm-hmm. so after a year of kind of auditions and testing people out and trying to get this band road crew off off the ground they disbanded um but during that time one of the singers they auditioned was the one-time black flag vocalist called ron reyes reyes whatever um he worked on material that included the main riff that would go on to become the guns and roses song rocket queen so i'm gonna play um a little clip off youtube of slash uh, doing his guitar solo of Rocket Queen, which is what kind of came about during the road crew days. That was just last year. That was pretty sick. Um, in Spring Silver Springs, Maryland. Somebody took a video of that. That's pretty cool. He's badass. Oh, yeah. So, at the same time, there was a band called Hollywood Rose. Hollywood Rose was formed in 1983, and they are best known kind of as the precursor for what would eventually become Guns N' Roses. But the group was first founded by Axl Rose, Izzy Stradlin, and Chris Webber. And they were called Hollywood Rose, and they recorded a five-song demo in 1984. They had some other guys that would come on when they would do live shows, but those were the three main guys. Um, They had several lineup changes, and then eventually Slash and Steven Adler, um, when they were after they left Road Crew, would come on, and Izzy Stradlin left. So I'm gonna play a song, uh, which is a demo version of Hollywood Rose from Hollywood Rose it's called Anything Goes and it's vi- it sounds very GNR to me let's hear what you hear what you think
There you go. That's Anything yeah. Goes by Hollywood Rose. I mean, that's classic Axl Rose, right? Screamy. Sounds very GNR. Oh, yeah. So at the same time, there was a band called L.A. Guns, um, and that also was formed in 1983. So basically in 1983, you had Hollywood Rose and L.A. Guns, and that was formed by Dr- Tracy Guns, Rob Gardner, and singer Mike, good luck on this name, Jagos, Jagzos, J-A-G-O-S-Z. I dare you to pronounce that. And bassist Ole Breach. Breach. Uh, Guns Gardner and Jagosies, <laughs> which is what I'm going to call him, met at Fairfax High School. Sorry, Mike. This lineup um, recorded the band's debut EP called Collector's Edition Number 1. Uh, Mike, the lead singer, was replaced by Axl Rose and merged with fellow uh, Los Angeles group, the defunct at that point, Hollywood Rose, to form Guns N' Roses in March of 1985. So basically, you had a couple people leave from Hollywood Rose, a couple people go to LA Guns, and eventually they all kind of merged into one. And for a couple months, um, Tracy Guns and Axl Rose were in Guns N' Roses, hence the name Guns N' Roses, and that was in March of 1985. Literally, like, two months later, not even, Guns N' Rose had a falling out. Gun left the uh, band, but they kept the name for the band, which always pissed off Tracy Guns, and the band kept its name, which is iconic, Guns N' Roses. Later that year, L.A. Guns was reformed by Tracy Guns and singer Paul Black, who added new members Mike Cripps, Robert Stoddard, and Nikki Alexander. And they came on to have a bunch of hit, uh, hits um, and were very iconic in the L.A. kind of rock scene. And I'm going to play one of their most famous songs and definitely their most radio popular song. It hit number 33, and it's called The Ballad of Jane. So let me find... That here is Ballad of Jane. are both very GNR. Yeah, that's LA Guns. In different ways. The Ballad of Jane. So, by this point in late March of 1985, they were kind of having a GNR rehearsal, but the lineup was still kind of all over the place. And the uh, original lineup kind of wasn't, or the classic lineup wasn't kind of there yet, but they rented out a Um, Duff said they rented out a studio in Silver Lake for $6 an hour um, which I think is hilarious and when they kind of started playing when the original lineup ended up kind of started playing you know they knew right away both Slash and Duff said they immediately knew that it was like this was the band they said they it was this meant to be thing they all had this crazy chemistry and they were all had kind of equal drive um, two reportedly only two people showed up for their first gig 
uh, which I, that might be like lore or something. They were known early on as being very violent and crazy on stage, kind of punk style. Owners, the club owners absolutely hated them and didn't want to book them, but they were growing such a large following and becoming so popular that they kind of didn't have a choice. So there ended up being this West Coast tour that they decided to go on, and it started March 26th, the Troubadour, and it was billed as the L.A. Guns and Hollywood Rose presents Guns and Roses because you still had kind of all these guys floating back and forth from these other two bands. Ole left after the first show and was replaced by Duff, and that was in Anaheim. Tracy Guns and Rob Gardner left after the May 12th show, and so on June 12th, uh, when they were back at the Troubadour, Slash uh, was on lead guitar, Adler was on drum, and this became the classic GNR lineup. So basically, when the tour started, it was the old crew, kind of both these two bands merged, and then by finally by June 12th, um, that's when the original GNR lineup started, and that's kind of the iconic show that was the band that everybody became to love and and uh, follow around. And the tour went on till May of 1987. Uh, it was they were gone for about a year and a half up and down the coast, and it became known as the Hell Tour due due to all the difficulties the band faced during the middle of that tour. They were doing so great. Um, about 1986, they signed with Geffen Records, and that's basically when their life changed. They started getting thousands and thousands of dollars. And when the tour ended, Duff said they were gone for a year and a half touring, and when they came back to L.A., everyone was dressed like him, and that's when he knew like their lives were changed, and they had like blown up, and they were super popular. And that's just way too fucking sick. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, during that tour, also, when they were playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go, Molly Crew, uh, one of the band members, saw them and asked them to open for them on one of their tours. And then also they opened around that same time for Aerosmith as well. So Guns N' Roses' debut album, Appetite for Destruction, which came out in 1987, reached number one on the Billboard 200 um, a year after its release. And it had the strength of its three top ten singles, which were Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City, and Sweet Child of Mine. Now, weren't I, they? Wasn't that one of the most, if not the most, successful debut album of all yes, time? Yes, I think it yeah. still is, actually. Yeah. Um, and it was like literally, it was so popular. Yeah. So I thought you'd find this interesting. Slash had this, um, this very expensive. He had a bunch of guitars that he kept trying out when they were recording this album, and he just couldn't find the right sound that he wanted. And then he had this. I think it was his manager, bought him this like crazy expensive 1959 Gibson Les Paul replica mm -hmm. and he ended up using that on the recording and that gave the album its kind of throwback Aerosmith sound so there's all these people who go on and try to all these critics about <clears throat> you know how their sound was different and that kind of made them you know change rock and roll and it also made Gibson guitars cool again because the 80s was all about glam rock and these those angular guitars and all this you know stuff yeah. and Gibson kind of was cool again. So I'm going to play one of their big hit singles that everybody knows. Welcome to the jungle. If I can find it, did I not put it on here? I'm gonna play it. I have yeah, it up. Do you have it? Yeah, play it. Yep. Welcome to the jungle. One of the sickest intros God, to a song. Sorry, of all somebody time. just peeked in my window and scared the crap out of me. Uh, who did that? Seth. Oh. 
classic set. Let's talk about PB Tom. That's weird. Okay. <laughs> okay, here's Welcome to the Jungle. Okay. That's the jungle of our dog Jack. <laughs> Their sound is just so sick. Yeah. Did you like uh, Jack's uh, Jack's appearance? He has a warm. <laughs> Sorry for that. Okay. <laughs> so going to a couple of the tragedies that happened when they were humongous and Gotta touring all over the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. The Donington Monsters of Rock Festival, which was in 1988, was headlined by Iron Maiden, along with Kiss, Megadeth, David Lee Roth, Halloween, which I'd never heard of, and Guns N' Roses. Um, this is such a badass lineup. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, Guns N' Roses uh, in England, the debut album had just came out, and everybody was dying to see them. They were completely freaking out about it. This w- this festival was a yearly thing, and it was a, a UK passage of right for rockers. So it's like if you are you know, going to like one of your first rock concerts, it was like everyone treks miles and miles and miles to get to this like festival every year. Yes. Side note, Monsters of Rock, I think 1991, after the Berlin Wall fell, there was like over a million people there. Yeah. It's crazy. You can see the footage of it. There's like helicopters flying around. Yes. Monsters of Rock, when I was growing up, was humongous. And I was like, how can I get to one of these shows? They terrified me. And I was also desperate to get at one at the same time. Because all the crazy stuff that would go on, you would hear about it all the time. So on August 20th, 1988, two people were tragically trampled to death during the Guns N' Roses performance at, um, at the festival. Uh, the big the band began their set and there was approximately a hundred thousand people in the crowd and they started oh. they started surging forward and although Axel Rose addressed the crowd in an attempt to kind of get him to calm down it didn't didn't work um, later on the media crucified the band and blamed them but you know they were unjustly vilified basically and the festival uh, the, their head of security defended the band and said there was nothing they could do. Um, online, there's a couple personal accounts of people who were there at the show, and it was it's interesting to kind of read those because they're like, at the time, we had no idea people were getting trampled. It was one of those things where so many people, yeah, and it was such a huge crowd. And at the end of the day, there was only 50 people that went down. So in a crowd of 100,000, a lot of people didn't even notice it was going on. They and Guns N' Roses kind of kept starting and stopping, and that's the only thing they really recognized was every once in a while they'd stop and be like hey man calm down back up you know whatever and most people left the concert not knowing that anybody had died or anything had happened um yeah and when everybody started leaving they found uh two people alan dick who was 18 and landed sigger who was 20 were face down in four inches of mud so damn when they decided to uh, investigate this, they discovered that all these heavy rains leading up to the festival had caused so much mud. And then, of course, with the overcrowding, 50 people had kind of collapsed in what they call a crowd collapse. And these two poor people were 
under everyone's feet covered in mud and basically drowned in the in the mud because they couldn't get up um and the festival shut down for a year and so they could do the inquiry and they ended up kind of putting the crowd on a slope after that uh for so they couldn't surge forward into the the stage so i'm gonna play or I, actually aiden you're gonna play one of your favorite songs from appetite of destruction called it's so easy yeah this song is absolutely so badass Literally, the first line is about someone's sister, and then he just says that he drinks and drives, and everything's inside. It's just like, dude, come on. That song, I, I can't tell you the whole story, because parents aren't supposed to tell their kids everything. <laughs> yeah, but and plus your parents are listening. <laughs> plus Nana's listening, and it would break yeah. her heart. But I was listening to that song at a sleepover with a bunch of friends, and I was sleeping, supposedly, and had that song going on, and I was woken up and in trouble. From something that I'm not going to mention, and I'm sorry uh, yes. that. <laughs> I think I've, you've told me this story actually. <laughs> sorry, Nana, love you. Sorry, sorry I'm Nana. in high school, but it was all I'm blaming on Guns and Roses. <laughs> so their next stu- that just gave me flashbacks. So their next studio album called GNR Lies in 1988 reached number two on the Billboard 200, and there's a Rolling Stone interview um, in '88 uh, with Axl Rose. And they were asking him about his writing. So him and he wrote basically all the songs. And then he co-wrote it with Izzy. And um, they asked him, you know, how do you come up with your, like, songs? And I thought this was interesting. So I'm going to read this little blurb of his. He says, this is Axel saying this, quote, they'll just show up. I keep them on file in my brain and then add them together. Like I'll be brushing my teeth and all of a sudden a pre-chorus will come and I won't know why then a bridge came through a year ago six months ago another part came last night a whole intro came when I was writing it I wasn't planning on putting it into the song but all of a sudden it just flowed so I thought that was an interesting kind of way you know an insight into how songwriters kind of come up with songs because sometimes you'll hear you know an interview songwriters come like oh yeah this one popped in my head and I wrote it in 15 minutes and I think that does sometimes happen but I think that I'll just also discourages people of like, oh, well, it doesn't come naturally to me. A song's not popping into my head every 15 minutes and being a number one hit. I think that most songs, if you don't write down the stuff that's coming into your head, there are people that hear music in their head. I am not one of them. I don't know if you are. I assume that you are mm-hmm. just from past conversations we've had. And if you don't put it down and kind of save it, you can't really start writing songs you know it's kind of in yeah. and out and you forget it you know so if anybody has songs in their heads write them down because they could benefit yeah. you a year later or five years later that is my mom advice there you go so one of the biggest controversies um on this 
GNR Lies album was a song called One in a Million. Axel uses the N word and the F word for gay people. Um, which On I the album? Like, in the song. Uh, over what? and over again. And Which song is that? It's called One in a Million, I just said. Oh, Pay sorry. Missed that. <laughs> Listen. It just shocked me. He goes on to kind of defend this in a lot of interviews by saying, you know, John Lennon had a song with the N-word in it, which he did. He had something about a woman is an N-word, or I don't know, whatever. I'm paraphrasing. And then he's like, NWA uses it, which they're allowed to. Flash alert, they're black, so they can use the N-word. Um, and it goes back to this thing that people talk about today is, you know, why can certain people use it and cer certain people can't? If you're white or not African-American, you cannot use this word, so stop using it. He also talks about immigrants kind of in a, you know, derogatory way, and he also um, is very homophobic in it, and he, talking about fags. Yeah, well, the, I just, I'm reading those F-word lyrics, and that's not chill at all. Yeah. No, it's a not a chill song. It's a horrible song. But he, he goes on to kind of describe... The reason he talks about immigrants in that way is because he says of a situation one time when him and Slash were at, in a 7-Eleven and they were kicked out by, an, he says, an Iranian with a butcher knife. Now, I don't know if he knows if he was Iranian or not, if he was being racist at the time. Um, and he thinks they were kicked out because of the way they were dressed. Um, and then he says he uses the word faggot because a guy tried to rape him at one point. He was apparently sleeping at this guy's house and he was, you know, assaulted and they got in a fight. And so he says, quote, when I get scared, I get mad. So he's basically, and then, you know, I think in his brain, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, to him, he's writing about personal experiences. Right. And maybe his feelings at the time and the rage he felt at the time. And when you're outraged, you use bad derogatory language. Okay, I get that. So... And there's been lots of music, you know, NWA talks about the police or, you know, whatever. Fuck the police, blah, blah, blah. Same thing. Yeah, but that's just true. Zing. <laughs> okay. Stop. So, you know, so it's a controversial song. And it yeah. was back then. And, you know, so. Well, I guess I guess it's just, I mean, you could justify it with just by saying it's, it's art and it's his expression. Well, and then it's just any other argument pretty much gets even if you're offended by it or not or if it's bad or not it gets thrown out the window right because so, he's an artist and he's famous right exactly so when he's asked by the reporter if he's anti-homosexual he says i'm pro-heterosexual okay well that's the same thing exactly Ye and stupid. he's so he basically is in the interview he's dancing around being homophobic and racist yeah but also he's molested and apparently tried to get raped so it's like he's got some anger issues no, mental issues cope with that it's like right, what, you know what do you got it's, it's a song so yep. Slash said in 1991 about the song, quote, when Axel first came up with a song and, re and really wanted to do it, I said I didn't think it was very cool. He said, but Axel gets very adamant about expressing himself, and his lyrics are very direct. He's very honest, and he's got his reasons. I don't regret doing one in a million. I just regret that we've been through what we've been through because of it and the way people have perceived our personal feelings. So Slash being half African-American is like basically what you said. This is art and it might be direct and it might be, you know, um, not what people want to hear, but it's yeah. how some people feel, unfortunately. He's a white dude that feels like that. And there's a lot of white dudes out there right now that feel like that, unfortunately. Yeah. So um, that's what it is, whether you like it or not, I guess. Um, but then again, um, 
you know, slash as well. I'm going to point this out just because I think that maybe back then this was a word that was thrown around way too much and that we don't use anymore, hopefully. Um, he was in an interview when he was being asked about his, he, this controversy that he had. Um, he was on the American Music Awards in 1991, and he said, fuck on a live taping. And, you know, people were like, oh, my God. Uh, he was an accepting award for GNR. And later on, when he was being interviewed about it, he was like, brought up Prince. He was like, oh, it was cool being there. We got to see a lot of cool people. And then he just randomly said, you know, Prince blew him off. And he said, quote, he looked like a fag that night anyway. <laughs> so okay, I just was, well. you know, this was a years after one in a million. So I was kind of like, mm, they're kind of thrown away, you know, thrown around the F word. Yeah, it's just not really a smart dude, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately back then that was a word that everybody used and I don't think they realized it was probably as hurtful or as terrible as it was. Um, I don't know. Maybe they did. So I'm going to play one in a million unless I didn't put it up like I did last time. Getting so into everything. I'm forgetting to look at my... I've got it right here. You do? Oh, how are you doing that so fast? Because I have... I, when you start talking about the songs, I pull them up. Oh, I have it right here too. Okay, well, I'm ready. Go. said it <laughs> what said so it. police and n-word that's right get out of my way don't need to buy none of your gold chains today now don't need no bracelets clamped in front of my back just need my ticket till then once you cut me some slack what the hell does that even mean well bracelets behind your back would be handcuffs oh yeah so wait but what so he literally just so what he doesn't like about the police is the bracelets kind of behind his back but he what he doesn't like black, black people is the gold chains that's, that's dude I mean I get you're expressing yourself but that's like really fucking stupid to be mad about <laughs> oh my god dude hey don't rain on Axel's parade alright whatever bro okay so in 1989 um, Izzy Stradlin had his own little issue uh, he found himself on the receiving end of a punch from Molly Crew vocalist Vince Neil at the 1989 MTV Music Awards I remember this clearly Stradlin was reportedly hitting on Neil's wife, and when the news of uh, the flirtation was delivered to the Molly uh, Crew singer, he took a swing at Stradlin and hit him in the face, and the incident uh, led to Axl Rose challenging 
uh, Neil to a fight, and although Neil accepted Rose's invitation, the fight never occurred. But that was a <laughs> that was an epic like battle everybody wanted to see, and it never happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe we can get them to do that now if they both yeah. get publicity. Get them in the they'll ring. They'll both throw they'll throw a punch, and their backs will throw out. <laughs> did you, see, did you see that Arnold Schwarzenegger got like kicked in the back when he was in Africa on like some? Speaking of getting punching in the back. He was doing some, uh, um, what do you call it, charity work. Yep. And he was being interviewed, and some dude just came up and full-on kicked him in the back and knocked him over. What? <laughs> yeah, you can see his video of it. just came out in the news. I thought anyway, he was made out of metal. How did he fall over? That was a side note. Well, he's he's the Terminator, but he's old. Yeah, I guess. Well, the Terminator old. He's rusty. Yeah. So another riot um, was at the Riverport Amphitheater on July yes. 2nd, 1991 in yes. St. Louis. And uh, they were one hour late on this show, but according to Duff, he's like one hour late to them was. That was on pretty time. early. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty early for Gina. They were infamously, I mean, hours and hours late for their shows, which led to a lot of people being pissed off. Yep. Um, Rocket Queen, the song that we played earlier, uh, they were in the middle of, and a guy was filming, and Axel asked the security to jump in and. and get the guy because it was distracting him and security did nothing so axel of course jumped off stage and tried to get the guy um and he ended up jumping back on the stage and then like throwing the mic down and walking off and the crowd freaked out and turned into a mob scene they ended up getting onto the stage and looting the gear they walked off with a piano like they carried a piano off they destroyed the venue. They ripped out seats and walked home with them. I mean, and it was a full-blown riot. Wow. Fifteen people were arrested. I can't believe more weren't. Um, and, um, you know, it, Rose was later arrested a year later for inciting a riot. Um, you know, I don't know why that took a year. but Honestly, that's such a sick thing to get arrested for, though. <laughs> How many guess. people can incite a riot? A riot? I don't know. but That's, that's so hard I, to do. I don't know if that's sick, but uh, God bless you. And uh, the charges were eventually dropped. Yeah. Um, and at this point, uh, they were all very, very much deep into addiction. And like Dove said, he was drinking a half gallon a day just mm-hmm. from his own refrigerator and then going to bars. Um. I mean, and just like copious amounts of drugs. Then Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, which were recorded simultaneously, uh, came out and they were released in 1991. It debuted at number two and number one on the Billboard 200, and respect- uh, respectively. And um, yeah, so Aiden's going to play Live and Let Die, another one of his phase off of the Use Your Illusion stuff. Use Your Illusion stuff. Stuff. I think that came out in like a box set, if I remember. It did. Say, let 
think that was in like a James Bond movie or something. I'm pretty sure yes, that's the first I'm time I heard sure that. it was to me. Yeah. Sounds like it. If it's not, it should be. Yeah. Um, of all the destructive Guns N' Roses moments, it's pretty clear none were as damaging or terrifying as the August 1992 riot that uh, that sparked when the band cut the show short in Montreal. Uh, they were in the middle of a co-lining tour with Metallica, and mm. they had already had kind of a mishap that. earlier when James Hetfield was badly burned in a pyrote- uh, mm-hmm. pyrotechnics mishap, forcing him to cut the set short. And then Axl Rose was forced to end his group's performance after less than an hour due to vocal problems. So many in the crowd completely lost their minds. Windows were smashed, cars overturned, fires started, street lamps were uprooted, and 300 cops had to be called in to get things back into control again, um, which is bananas, bananas. And so in honor of that, we're going to play Civil War because of all the riots. I don't need you know Civil War. Let me pull it up. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some man you just can't reach. So you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. I don't like it. so many it was very difficult to pick like what songs to play because there's so yeah, many. yeah there's just so many good ones um okay so i put this in here because there was an iconic rivalry between kurt cobain and axel yes, rose yes, yes, i don't know if yes. you call it a rivalry but one little tiff at the mtv music awards in 1992 because it's bringing your whole world of music colliding into one moment mm-hmm. axel rose was passing Kurt Cobain, who was holding his three-week-old baby, Francis Bean, in his arms. And Kurt Cobain, who apparently liked Guns N' Roses, I think. Do you know yeah, if that's true or not? I think so. Or um, he at least said he had nothing. There was, like, no problem with for with Right. Him, I guess, and no. probably, you know, thought it was – I'm sure he listened to them growing up. Um, he walked by and yelled sarcastically, supposedly, would you be the godfather of our child? And reportedly Guns N' Roses – Frontman Axel Rose, <laughs> which makes it very dramatic, turned to Kurt and declared, "Quote: You better keep your wife shut, or I'm going to take you to the pavement." Yeah, well, because so, I I think oh, maybe Courtney, Courtney Love, Love was inciting some shit. That's she was right. just being annoying, probably because she was on heroin. Because she's annoying. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> okay, so let me say, let me say that again. Kurt Cobain holding his three week old baby. Courtney Love cracked out and on heroin, screams to Axel Rose. <laughs> Would you be the godfather of our child? As she laughs maniacally with her red lipstick smeared all over her teeth and her hair mm-hmm. crazy and her dress mm-hmm. falling down. Mm-hmm. Axel Rose, being the badass he is, says, you better shut up your wife or I'm going to take you to the pavement. Right. There we go. Does that sound better? Yeah. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed because yep. Axel Rose would have beat the crap out of Kurt Cobain. <laughs> I, think, I, I think he would have killed Kurt Cobain. <laughs> he would have killed him. 
There would have been no chance. He wouldn't chance. even have punched him or even attempted, I don't think. No. Nobody was hurt um, except Nirvana's bassist, who threw his instrument high in the air and caught it on his own head that same evening. Um, oh, yeah. It has to do with anything, but that just is funny because they're all a bunch of goofballs, ding-dongs. So at this point, everyone in the band's body is shutting down. <laughs> because. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. All their internal organs and their brain is saying, I'm done, and I'm literally going to put my power down button on, and everyone's done. Yep. So Duff's pancreas exploded, literally. It was the size of a football, and the doctor that was on this documentary said it was chewing itself apart from the inside out, and it was like having third-degree burns inside your body. And that's mainly from alcohol, right? Yes, he said he is from alcohol. He was crazy drinking vodka. The half well, he's gallon the, uh, of alcohol was vodka. It was like he's also the king thing. of beers too. That's yes. why Duff beer in uh, The Simpsons. No, that's king. not true. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Look yeah. it up right now. How do you know? I did look it up. I looked at it before we did it. No, they, they said that he said that they ca- they called him to make a cartoon about it. No, and The Simpsons said it has nothing to do with Duff. So The really? Simpsons is right. I love The Simpsons. Yes, it is a it is a one of those like fables that's not true. Well, why did he say it was true? That's because kind of Duff wants mean. to be true because he's probably a, a narcissist. Well. That the Simpsons said it's not true. So maybe the Simpsons and Duff should fight uh, or have a battle uh, on whatever. Um, He was basically dying, and then, like, overnight, something kind of turned around. They figured he could save the situation, and the doctors basically told him he had been given a second chance. Um, and he really got into martial arts after that and kind of started getting healthy. And then... Uh, screwed it up, which I'll tell say in a minute. At the same time, Slash was using heroin. Um, Mr. Brownstone, the song is about heroin. Uh, yep. And he was said he'd started doing heroin literally, literally from the beginning. Like as soon as the band formed, he was doing heroin. He was doing lots of coke, and he said I was a coke junkie and a heroin junkie. He trashed a hotel uh, room in Phoenix one night and was naked and bloody all over, bloody, running around the hotel. Um, and the cops showed up and tried to arrest him. And he talked his way out of getting arrested. He had been jailed numerous times because of drugs. Um, and basically was, I think, the definition of a hellraiser on crack and heroin. And he decided to get sober eventually, realizing that the band was falling apart and was like, I need to get my shit together. But it clearly was too late at that point. Steven Adler was actually fired from the band in 1990. Everybody else ended up quitting because they were like, "I this is too much for me you know at different times and when their health was taking a turn they quit um steven this, Ad- is, Adler, this is all falling apart in like 1996 this is happening around 90 yeah what what 1990 steven adler was fired in 1990 wait so the band started falling apart that early well and they started they got falling back apart together. but they kept they kept the everyone was getting addicted and trying to get off stuff Adler left in 1990 and everybody else was like the band was starting to kind of fall apart but they were still playing and stuff Mm. okay but they weren't broken up that at that point they were kind of falling apart okay kind of different so he was fired because he was also crazy addicted to heroin and the kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back was he showed up to record civil war the song we just played a little earlier and after like 30 takes, he literally couldn't get through it. He couldn't play anymore. Like he couldn't function. Yeah. 
Um, after he was fired, he weirdly went on to join a band, a San Francisco-based uh, glam band called Vane in 1991, hmm. which is weird because that was Duff's band, The Vanes, the punk band we played earlier. Right. That was kind of weird. And then he renamed The Vane after uh, Slash's band. I don't know if he named it after, but he renamed The Vane Road Crew, which was Slash's old band. <laughs> the same here. So it's weird. Hmm. Uh, Matt Sorum, uh, the Colts drummer, replaced Adler. And so we're going to play Mr. Brownstone. Do you have that one up? No, but that is one of my favorite songs by them as well. And it's so clearly about heroin in the lyrics that it's like almost yeah. undeniable. Do you have it up? Because uh, I have it up right here. Yes, I have it right here. Okay. There you go. That's Mr. Brownstone. Yep. I could play that all day. So, their next album was called The Spaghetti Incident in 1993, which I had completely forgotten about. Really? Yeah. Um, it was their uh, last studio album that featured Slash and McKagan, and it was a collection of punk and glam rock covers. So nothing original, and it was mm. released November twenty third, nineteen ninety three. Um, and interestingly, there is a hidden track, um, which is a cover of "Look at Your Game Girl" by Murderer Charles Manson. Oh which wow! We talked about before. Yep. Um, so it's not listed on the album covers or anything like that. It's a hidden track. Clearly, that's what hidden track means. Uh, this caused outrage for Geffen, and they said. The band members, you know, said that they were going to donate money, any, you know, money they got off specifically that song. I don't know how they would figure that out. But to the Manson victims, there was a bunch of organizations they mm -hmm. talked about, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were trying to make amends and backtrack, it sounded like. And they said they were going to eventually take the hidden track off, which they never did. Um, so, uh, and then Axl Rose at one point was wearing a Manson tee somewhere. And it used to, so basically it was, you know, it's back to this old punk thing. Um, about just trying to incite outrage in people yeah. and try to push people's buttons and and of course now it's looked at as you're you're shitting all over the victims of these horrible crimes and it's not cool um, but uh, you know I would be curious to see if you can still find the hidden track on there or not I didn't really look but I just thought that was a little interesting because we've talked about that before um, in our um, do you know what the hidden track is called thing. it's called look at your game girl so next came years years later they kind of broke up everybody went their own ways um 
Duff ended up going to school like for business and accounting and interestingly um, when Axel Rose was interviewed at one point he's like the biggest piece of advice I could give to young people is like no matter what you do whether you're an artist or a musician or whatever is learn about business and get some kind of business degree or business knowledge under your belt because at the end of the day people are screwing you out of your money if you don't know where where your money's going or how to handle your finances or do your taxes and at the end of the day everybody's making money and everybody wants to keep their money because that's how you survive and Duff kind of felt the same way so he ended up going back to school and getting a degree um, because he wanted to know where all this money was going that he'd been pissing away and clearly blacking out through half of it and not knowing where anything was it was probably pretty easy to take money from these guys I would assume um, slash everybody kind of went into the various bands and they have I mean if you want to look up where they've all been they all do pretty cool stuff and have stuff out and tour all the time uh, slash had a band for a little while called Slash's snake pit um, that he put out basically after they all broke up and he said it actually could have been a GNR record but Axel didn't think it was good enough uh, slash Duff and Matt Sorum uh, formed the band Revel- uh, Velvet Revolver yeah um, which is super cool uh, Dave Kushner of Wasted Youth and Scott Weiland of STP, RIP. Uh, they were also in the band, and unfortunately, they ended up getting their own recognition and being huge. Not unfortunately, but unfortunately, because their newfound fame with Velvet Revolver, a lot of the guys fell off the wagon. Yeah. Started drinking again. Duff started doing pills, and they all shit the bed basically, and then had to get sober again. So they're on this like off and on sober train. Let me play a. Uh I want to play my favorite song by Velvet Revolver real quick. Okay. One of the, one of the hits. What's it called? Slither. Oh. Riff is, that riff is just so badass. Yeah, that's so cool, super cool. Wow, we've talked about a lot of stuff today. Yeah. A lot of cool, lot of cool bands mentioned. Also, one thing that Slash does, I, I don't know, obviously he didn't start this, but there's like a lot of bands, that, especially in like uh, like Laguna Beach, all these like little bands that I've been listening to and seeing play and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, especially being in a band with people from Laguna Beach, that it's like this thing where you, you play whatever riff you're playing mm-hmm. but instead of playing it on like the root note where you play the riff you play it the third up so it's like if you're playing something in a you play it in c that would be basically that it's not even necessarily correct that's just like the base way to play it like a minor and then you play a whatever music theory but it like adds this cool sound to it and you can hear it in a lot on uh appetite for destruction in the background he uh, slash like layers it in in the background there it's is that cool like a sounding. blues? Because they said that he had a lot of rhythm and blues kind of well, stuff that's, that he would kind of a lot of his, in his stuff. Is that a yeah, blues well, thing? you can hear that in his lead guitar yeah. a lot, too. That's I don't even know what that is. Though. That's just something that I've heard before, like with like just like fuzzy, heavy stuff that mm-hmm. I listen to. That's just he's like all, really obscure and yelly. He's all self-taught, too, which is crazy to me. Is he really? Mm-hmm. Jeez. That's well, in the crazy. beginning, I don't know if he took lessons after, but he was all self-taught. Yeah. Wow. So uh, Guns N' Roses was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012. 
it was the classic lineup with two later members, Reed and drummer Matt Sorum. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rose ended up declining to be included and didn't show up. He gave kind of a little blurb about, I don't know where the money goes for this organization. I don't know who picks the bands, but there's so many bands out there that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he didn't feel comfortable being inducted. That's a lot of people uh, that turn it down. It's just one of those things of like, why is this one person winning this Oscar when there's so much talent out there? Or why is this band mm. getting chosen when, you know, whatever. So I get that. That's kind of goes par for the course with a, a lot of these awards and it, and like honors and stuff. It's like, yeah, there's people out there that deserve it too and they don't get it. So it's like, who, who gets to decide and why do you get to decide and not <coughs> other people, whatever. So um, the Not In This Lifetime Tour which was basically a reunion of of uh, Axel slash and Duff, who hadn't played since the Use Your Illusion tour in 1993. They got together, which most people did not think was ever going to happen. Um, and they went on uh, basically from April 2016 to December 2018, a tour. Uh, their warm-up tour started fittingly at the Troubadour, which is where the original lineup played for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, Aiden and, and I did. saw them yeah. right in after November that. of 2017, right after the Troubadour thing, uh, at the T-Mobile Arena in Vegas. And they were amazing. Axel yep. had broken his leg prior to the show. Remember that? Yep. And he was on Dave Grohl's, I call it the Game of Thrones chair. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, the Foo Fighters chair. The Foo Fighters chair. And fun fact about me during that show, because they play late and it's tiring for a little boy, I felt they like actually They played late, but they actually were on time. Yeah. Was it? Or were they an hour late? They, were they weren't really late. I think they were like they were 30 late. minutes late. Yeah. A little late. But anyway, I fell but asleep. But they played for like two and a half hours. Sorry. I'm I fell asleep standing up. During the show, that's all I wanted to say. And the first, but the first time we saw, I saw them with Seth, and then my friend Zach, old childhood friend. Oh right. Um, we saw them in Vegas too at the Hard Rock Casino. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, and that was just with Axl Rose and like I don't think it was anybody else from Guns N' Roses. Nobody else. Yeah. Because yeah, he tours like stri- with Gun. Yeah. Go ahead. They had like strippers on stage with the stripper poles, and like it was very weird. And uh, what's that comedian guy? That's like very edgy and whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Opens for rock stars. Okay, well, he performed a set, and then we were in like the VIP box, and he came in and sat right next to us. He had like some super young girl around his arm, and he looked like he was like 85, which was kind of disgusting. I remember that shocked me and made me feel disgusting. Mm -hmm. But they went on. I don't know if they were supposed to go on this late, but they went on like a little past 12, and their their set didn't even end until like 4 in the morning. So oh, I, again, I fell asleep right. during that. So every Guns N' Roses show I've been to, I've fallen asleep at because <laughs> it's just way too late. Well, I remember we were li- we were like rocking out and geeking out, and yeah. there was there was some dude. He had to have been on acid or something. He could not even stand up straight. He was like falling all over everybody in the aisle that we were in, sitting in. And then I was like grinning ear to ear. I could stop smiling because I was so excited. And then all of a sudden, I feel like this weight on me, and I'm like, "What the hell?" And I look over at Aiden's. Fully, fully asleep on his shoulder. <laughs> oh, uh, such a cute little baby. Yep. Okay. Well, that is. Oh, and Alice in Chains opened for them too. I forgot oh, about right. that. That was that's sick. Right. That I was love sick. Alice in Chains too. Alice in Chains. Yep, that was mm-hmm. fun. That was a good show. Well, that was our Guns and Roses episode. 
thanks for listening guys i'm going to play us out with some sweet child of mine follow right. us on social media twitter which is pathetic and uh <laughs> instagram which we'll try to post more and look out for we have a new logo coming out that we've been working on the past mm-hmm. couple weeks it's super cool looking so i will post that and i will post a picture of aiden geeking out at his first gig with his band what's it called what your band paradise falls right now but that's gonna change paradise falls yeah well I'll, I'll i'll tell you when we have some more gigs set up some if there's anybody in la that would like to come through that'd be f- very cool that'd be very cool all right here's sweet child of mine see you later